Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 51. Today we will be reading Book 12, chapters 16 through 21 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So St. Augustine is going to meditate on the infinite riches of sacred scripture, and he's going to say, you know, some people say this, and some people say that, and some people say this, and some people say that. And you might get the impression, okay, I don't entirely understand what you're saying, but you seem to be suggesting that the sacred scriptures can mean all kinds of different things. And in thinking that, you would be kind of right and kind of wrong, uh, because he thinks that the sacred scripture can mean a number of things, because the word of God is living and effective, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce between joints and marrow, soul and spirit, and to discern reflections and thoughts of the heart. But also, it has to be true. Like, it has to correspond with the reality. So we're approaching a reality, so we're not relativists. So we don't say, you know, Genesis 1-2 can mean, like, ducks fly, and, like, beavers are unlike baboon. You know, it's, it's just not, you can't just make anything up. It has to come from the text, and it has to be judged by the text. So he's not a relativist, but he is conscious of the fact that we are limited in our understanding, and we're going to have to grope in the dark until such time as we lay hold of God himself. So, in that effort, let's go ahead and get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 16. Allow me to speak a bit in your presence, O my God, with these men who grant that all these things are true, which your truth whispers into my soul. Let those who deny them yap and deafen themselves as much as they please. I will try to persuade them to be quiet and will strive to open in them a way for your word to reach them. But if they refuse and push me away, then I beseech you, O my God, do not be silent to me. Speak truly in my heart, for only you speak thus. And I will leave them to themselves, blowing up dust into their own eyes. And I will enter my chamber, and there sing a song of love unto you, groaning with unutterable words, here in the midst of my wayfaring, remembering Jerusalem, with my heart lifted up toward it, Jerusalem, my homeland, Jerusalem, my mother, over which you yourself are the illuminator, father, guardian, and husband, you who are our pure and powerful delight and solid joy, indeed, you who are ineffably all good things, yes, all at once, for you are the one sovereign and true good. Nor will I be turned away until you gather all that I am, taking it from this dispersed and disordered state into the peace of our most dear mother, where the first fruits of my spirit already are, so that these things are indeed certain to me, and where I beseech you to conform and confirm them there for eternity, O my God, my mercy. 
But I will answer those who do not hold that all these truths are false, men who honor your holy scriptures set forth by holy Moses, men who place it as we do upon the summit of authority to be followed, while, however, themselves still opposing me on some point. Judge by yourself, O our God, between my confessions and these men's words of contradiction. Chapter 17 For they say, though these things are true, nonetheless Moses did not intend those two when, by the Spirit's revelation, he said, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. By the word heaven, he did not mean that spiritual or intellectual creature that always beholds the face of God, nor by the word earth did he mean to indicate that formless matter. But what then did he mean? And they respond, that man of God meant what we say, that is, what he declared by those words. What is that then? They say, by the words heaven and earth, he would first mean this entire visible world, universally and all in one, so that he might thereafter, through the enumeration of the days of creation, arrange in detail and, as it were, piece by piece, all those things that it pleased the Holy Spirit thus to speak of. For those to whom he spoke were such simple and sense-bound people that he thought them fit to be entrusted with the knowledge only of God's visible works. But they do agree that the words concerning the invisible and formless earth and the dark deep might not unsuitably be understood as referring to this first matter, out of which it is then subsequently revealed that all the visible things that we know were made and arranged during those days that follow thereafter. What if someone else should now say that this same formless and confused matter was, for this reason, first expressed by the words heaven and earth, because this visible world, with all those natures that very clearly appear in it, which is often called heaven and earth, was created and perfected from it? And again, what if someone else says that invisible and visible nature is not, indeed, inappropriately called heaven and earth, and so that the whole of creation, which God made in his wisdom, that is, in the beginning, was embraced under those two words? Nevertheless, all things are not made out of God's substance, but rather out of nothing, because they are not the same as God is, for they all have a mutable nature, whether they abide, as does the eternal house of God, or undergo change, as does man's soul and body. Therefore, the common matter of all things visible and invisible, as yet unformed, though capable of receiving form, from which both heaven and earth were to be created, that is, the invisible and visible creature when formed was designated, so such a questioner would say, by the same names that were ascribed to formless and invisible earth and the darkness upon the depths, though with this distinction, that formless and invisible earth refers to bodily matter before it was characterized by any form, and darkness upon the depths refers to spiritual matter before it was restrained from its unlimited fluidity or received any light from wisdom. Perhaps someone may also say, if he so wills that the already perfected and formed natures, both visible and invisible, are not referred to by the words heaven and earth when we read, in the beginning God made heaven and earth. Rather, they might say that these words referred to the yet unformed beginning of things, material that is apt to receive form and be fashioned. It would have contained within itself, as it were, mixed together and not yet distinguished by quality or form, all those things that now have been put into order and are called heaven and earth that is, spiritual and bodily creation. Chapter 18 Having heard and fully considered all this, I will not argue about words, for that is profitable only to the destruction of those who hear it. But the law is good for edification, if a man lawfully makes use of it. For the ultimate end of the law is charity, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And our Master knew well the two commandments upon which hang all the law and the prophets. And how does it harm me, O my God, you who are the light of my eyes in secret, where I zealously confess these things, since various things might be understood to be found under these words, all of which would be true? How, I say, does it harm me if I have a different opinion on this than what some other person thinks this writer thought? 
All of us who read truly strive to trace out and understand the meaning of the person we are reading. And given that we believe that he speaks the truth, we dare not imagine that he would have said anything that we ourselves either know or think is false. Therefore, while every man strives to understand the Holy Scriptures in accord with what the sacred writer himself thought, what harm comes from a man understanding what you, the light of all true speaking minds, shows him to be true, although he whom he reads did not have this in mind, seeing that he too understood a truth, though not this one. Chapter 19 For it is true, O Lord, that you made heaven and earth, and it also is true that the beginning is your wisdom in which you create all things. And likewise, it is true that this visible world has as its greater parts heaven and earth, which, in short, embrace all fashioned and created natures. And it is also true that whatever is changeable indicates to us that there is a kind of lack of form by which it receives a form is changed or turned about. And it is true that the being that clings to the unchangeable form is not subject to time, for though it itself is subject to change by its nature, it never undergoes change. It is true, too, that formlessness that is almost nothing cannot be subject to the alteration of time. And likewise, it is true that that from which a thing is made might, after a particular manner of speaking, be referred to using the name of the thing made from it. Thus, that formlessness, from which heaven and earth were made, might itself be called heaven and earth. And so, too, it is true that among things having form, there are none that are any nearer to being formless than are the earth and the depths. Yes, it is true that not only every created and formed thing, but indeed everything that is capable of being created and formed was made by you, from whom all things are. And it is true that whatsoever is formed out of that which had no form was itself unformed before it was formed. Chapter 20 all those whose inward eye you have enabled to see such things and who immovably believe that your servant Moses spoke in the spirit of truth, take some particular truth from among these truths. Thus, one is taken by him who says, In the beginning God made heaven and earth, that is, in his word co-eternal with himself, God made intelligible and sensible or spiritual and bodily creation. And another truth is taken by him who says, In the beginning God made heaven and earth, that is, in his word co-eternal with himself, God made the whole bulk of this bodily world, together with all those conspicuous and known creatures that it contains. And yet another truth is taken by him who says, In the beginning God made heaven and earth, that is, in his word co-eternal with himself, God made the formless matter of creatures, both spiritual and bodily. Another truth is taken by him who says, In the beginning God created heaven and earth, that is, in his word co-eternal with himself, God created the formless matter of bodily creation in which heaven and earth remained in as yet confused state, which we today see distinct and formed in the bulk of the world before our eyes. And yet another truth is appealed to by him who says, in the beginning God made heaven and earth, that is, in the very beginning of his creative work, God made that formless matter that contained in itself both heaven and earth in a state of confusion, from which, after receiving its form, everything has emerged that we now can see. Chapter 21. And the same thing holds true for the words that follow. From all those truths, one man chooses one truth when he says, but the earth was invisible and formless and darkness was over the depths. That is, the bodily thing that God made was as yet a formless matter of bodily things, without order and without light. And another he who says, the earth was invisible and formless and darkness was over the depths. That is, all of this, which is called heaven and earth, was still a formless and dark matter, from which the bodily heaven and earth were to be fashioned with all they contain, which we know through our bodily senses. And another truth is taken by him who says, The earth was invisible and formless, and darkness was over the depths. That is, 
all that is called heaven and earth was still a formless and dark matter from which God would fashion both that intelligible heaven, elsewhere called the heaven of heavens, and the earth, that is, the whole of bodily nature, which also includes what we call the bodily heavens. In short, that from which every visible and invisible creature was to be created. And still, another truth is taken by him who says, the earth was invisible and formless, and darkness was over the depths. Scripture did not refer to that formlessness by the name heaven and earth. Rather, that formlessness already was there, which Moses called the invisible and formless earth, and darkness over the depths, out of which, as he had said before, God made heaven and earth, namely spiritual and bodily creation. And another says, the earth was invisible and formless, and darkness was over the depths. That is, there already was a kind of formless matter from which, as the scripture said earlier, God made heaven and earth, namely, the whole bodily mass of the world divided into two great parts, upper and lower, with all the common and well-known creatures in them. Okay, so in this particular section, in the chapters from which we just read, St. Augustine, obviously, he realizes that he differs with certain people on the interpretation of sacred scripture. So, on the one hand, he just doesn't want to have anything to do with those who are uninterested in the truth. You know, so I'm sure there are people out there who are just like, what if we just argued about this? Or there are people out there that are like, what if we just advanced heresies? Or there are people out there that were like, what if we just published novel academic articles so as to get ourselves tenure? Ooh, maybe Father Gregory's talking about the contemporary situation. Hard to say. Uh, but but if provided that you're interested in the truth, he wants to have a conversation with you. So, yeah, Father Jacob Bertrand. This is pretty cool. You know, the 21st century can be a hard place in which to have a conversation, but St. Augustine seems to suggest that it's that it's worth it. Your thoughts? You know, what, what strikes me here as the problem is less of, not the problem with St. Augustine, but the problem that he's proposing in the reading of sacred scripture is less the sort of problem of trying to find the truth and having an argument about whether this interpretation or understanding is true or not, but the question of how do you sort of sift out? It seems to me that people, when they're reading the scriptures, even when they're wrong, think that they're pursuing the truth. You know, so how is it that that's sifted out and that's read? You know, we can think of it in the context of the confessions, right? The Manichees use the scriptures in erroneous ways to answer questions or they ignore parts of the scriptures, you know. But it seems if you were to ask a Manichaean, I don't think a Manichaean would say, well, I'm not after the truth. You know, so for St. Augustine, for us, the problem yeah, it's not a conversation about what's written and what what we're learning from it, but or debate or an argument. But how is it that we know what we're pursuing is true? That kind of question stands out for me. And Saint Augustine talks about this. He's, we're going to talk about it. And if Father Gregory already mentioned, you know, it's it's the text of the word of God that bears the burden of the truth and presenting the truth. So, and the way by which we're we're taught to live and know God through the scriptures. But that that stands out to me in, as a problem or the problem for St. Augustine, you know, in his context, but also in ours and in, in the 21st century. Um, it doesn't, it hasn't really changed all that much, the problem as it were. Mm. Yeah, I think here we have a couple of good principles that St. Augustine introduces. Uh, he'll talk about, often enough, he'll talk about how the real standard for our interpretation of sacred scripture is love, specifically the double love command, namely love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then your neighbor as yourself. And there's the logic here of we've heard already a few times from 1 John, but in that letter of 1 John, you know, if I say dot, 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 I can say all kinds of things about my faith, about my love, about yada, yada, thus and such. But if I don't love my brother, I'm a liar and the truth is not in me. Um, so I think that there's this kind of sensibility or this practicality to Christian profession that if you believe, it's hard to 
determine. Obviously, it's it's nigh unto impossible to determine whether or not you have the faith or you have the state of grace, but you can kind of track it down by the evidence. It's like, well, I used to be a brat, but now I am ever so slightly less of a brat. How did that come about? Maybe the Lord is at work in my life. And so I think that um, St. Augustine also assists us in our efforts by introducing principles like that. And, and you know, in the 21st century, we're, we're going to be tempted to demonize the other person or uh, to shout the other person down, perhaps. And in some instances, we, we do have to be con- you know, like conscious of the fact that our fight is not with flesh and blood, it's with powers and principalities. And sometimes we we do find ourselves ranged against the evil one. And I think here of like, especially diabolical things like, you know, like abortion, uh, physician-assisted suicide. It's like, well, you know, you don't want to compromise with that type of thing. But still, you're always engaged with other human beings, right? And we have to believe that those other human beings are called to union with God. And so sometimes it's not as easy as us versus them. It, it could just be us versus the evil one who's at work in our midst, stirring up strife and stirring up dissension. So St. Augustine, he's got these, these cool sensibilities that like, the point is ecclesial union. You know, the point is the worship of God. So yeah, I don't know if you have f- further thoughts on that particular theme. Yeah, the as St. Augustine is trying to draw us to God, he's also drawing us to God through the Word and through the Church and in the fullness of faith and in the fullness of life in the Church. Sometimes we can kind of compartmentalize what we do in the faith, and, you know, especially as we're kind of engaging with a, a speculative reality, it's very easy to sort of say like, okay, I'm going to listen to this podcast or spend some time reading St. Augustine, but without consideration for how that transfers over into my into my prayer, into my life in the church, into my reading of scripture. So there's, there's this inquiry for a sense of holistic reality. That's, I don't know, that's sort of jargony and it might be a bad way to describe it. But all of this is about, you know, knowing God. And St. Augustine he points out too that there's a real um, sense to our ability to know. You know, Christ promises to send the Holy Spirit to guide us in all truth, and that's not lost on Saint Augustine. That's not lost on us in the grace of the sacraments or in the reading of the Scripture, and our ability to come to know the truths that are revealed, even if they're in basic kind of ways. So, yeah, it's all of a piece, and we have to sort of live in it as it is all in a piece. Yeah. And so St. Augustine will provide us with some further indications as to how we read sacred scripture. He'll say, all right, the standard for interpretation is to try to understand the mind of the inspired author, to you know gain access to the truths themselves, to live in accord with them, as we have already said. And then he'll just start listing things that we know doctrinally. He's like, there's things that we know because they've been revealed, right? He might not express it in the same way that we do, uh, because he's He's really writing only after the first two ecumenical councils and after 21 ecumenical councils in our current position. I think we have a, not like a better sense necessarily, but we have a more fleshed out sense of the church's teaching office, the tradition, the clarifications that it provides, and kind of how we stand in that current. St. Augustine is part of that current in a big way, which I suppose we are too, but eh, (laughs) in a lesser degree, to a lesser degree. Um, But he's like, okay, we know that God made heaven and earth. We know that that means everything, you know, all creatures, visible and invisible. There's a certain formlessness with the scriptures talk about. There's got to be like a deficiency of being of some sort in creation. Otherwise, it couldn't come to be further. Okay, so we know that. So then let's go through our various interpretations of verse one, and then let's go through our various interpretations of verse two, and let's affirm what we can affirm. You know, like let's hold them together. So in his kind of methodology there, or in the process that he adopts for helping us to understand what's at stake, and then how we come better to understand it. Were there particular things that that jumped out to you or that stood out to you? Yeah, the, I think his 
kind of method of sifting through the different interpretations of kind of the presentation. And you can see sometimes by way of comparison what truth is. So that was helpful. Though, again, as we've said in these sections, it can be technical or a bit more, you know, it can be those things, but it's also helpful to kind of, okay, these are ways by which one might rightly or have the facility to interpret these verses. I think, Father Gregory, you mentioned in a earlier episode here that there are, in on this book, that there are, you know, the church hasn't pronounced dogmatically on every single thing because sometimes there's a breadth of interpretation on on the revelation of God. So it doesn't mean that like all of these are heresy and one is true and we're trying to, you know, there's, we can understand it through the prism in different ways. So looking at, at verse one in particular, you know, the, the different ways of how God or the understanding of how God creates spiritual bodily, how that works together, how that might not work together. Um, yeah. And the way it coalesces is, is a helpful, like what pedagogy, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. So he's, you know, in conversation with his contemporaries. There's a lot of people out there saying a lot of things. He doesn't know or master Greek too terribly well, but there would have been some Latin translations of some of the Greek fathers. So you can think about like, you know, like who, who are the people to which he had access? And you can think about, you know, in the last century, you would have had Origen commenting on a lot of sacred scripture. And then his contemporaries in the East would have been people like St. Gregory of Nyssa or St. Gregory of Nazianzus or St. Basil the Great or St. Athanasius, you know, like they would have come a generation, half generation before him. And then his contemporaries in the West would have been people like St. Ambrose, you know, who we've heard about quite a bit, St. Jerome, with whom he was uh, kind of in hotly contested debate on certain particular issues, but certainly, you know, his, his commentary on sacred scripture is fruitful, is helpful. And so, they're out there saying, as we have heard it said, and and he's you know he's engaged in in exchanges, and certainly the the book of Genesis is something that Saint Augustine loved very very much. So he has this commentary on these opening verses from the book of Genesis, and then he's got a literal commentary on the the book of Genesis, and then he's got a commentary on Genesis against the Manichees. And I don't have an exhaustive knowledge of everything that he wrote, so I'm going to be missing a couple of things besides. So yeah, this is a particular theme that Saint Augustine finds very engrossing, uh, very captivating, very interesting, Part in part because of his history, in part because of our Christian tradition. But yeah, it, you can see that it's just interesting in itself. And so I find it super fruitful and super encouraging that he affords us as a reader and also as a Christian, again, a kind of liberty of entry into the tradition, not so that we can come up with crazy things and say whatever we darn well please, but so that we can feel the freedom of the sons of God and not fear like, oh, if I say something, I might fall into heresy. You might which is to say you might fall into material heresy, which is saying something inaccurate. Uh, but you're not going to fall into formal heresy, which is to say an obstinate refusal of some doctrine of the faith, provided that you're open to the church, to her pastors and teachers, and provided that you're, you know, like you're willing to be corrected, you're willing to be encouraged. So I, I, I found that to be something, you know, kind of beautiful about this particular section. So yeah, Father Jacob Bertrand, any final thoughts here? I think that as as you mentioned that with you know St Augustine and you mentioned earlier you know the the council where he sits in in relation to ecclesiology and the church's existence you know he's he's sitting on just a couple councils and and a couple hundred years of the church's reflection on these things we're sitting on a couple thousand years we have the privilege of reading St Augustine journeying with him studying in this sort of way but also the the great reliance on those thousands of years and that's not to say that Augustine got it wrong but we're kind of 
privileged in having a lot more time to have ideas formed and understandings of things formed by, you know, resting on on the foundation of St. Augustine and others, but also expounded upon by other great minds and saints throughout the centuries. So yeah, it's good for us, I think, as you were describing, to dive in, to study, to understand, to read, and and to come to know, but guided and, and trusting in the church's guidance here and the church's wisdom. Um, we have kind of all the proper kind of guidelines, bumpers in place that we can we can like forge ahead with great confidence. We can indeed, which is proper to those who have been marked by the sign of Christ, you know, to, to have a kind of confidence that our Lord who goes before us, who accompanies us, who makes up for what is lacking in all of our efforts, will see it through to its completion and will bless us in turn. So that's our hope. And you can know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>